Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm Magic Brian, your host for this growing collection of interviews, and this is episode 101. If you've been listening, you know that David Aiken, the checkboard guy, and Robert Nelson, the butterfly man, started this podcast back in 2011. After Robert passed away, David kept it going, along with the help of several people, me being one of them. I jumped on board in 2012, and have been interviewing friends and editing episodes ever since. About a year ago, David decided at episode 100, he was ready to focus his free time on other things. And by other things, he meant brewing delicious beer. I've had some of it. A lot of it. It's really good. If you ever find yourself on Vancouver Island, go find him and enjoy his selection of home-brewed beers. He'll be happy to share them with you. But I digress. He has passed the podcast on to me, and I'm happy to be taking the reins and doing my best to keep it going. The biggest difference you'll notice is my voice at the top and tails of each episode, but the content will be of the same quality we've been delivering for years. This episode, Al Miller talks to street performing legend Dom Ferry, a performer who has influenced many of the best street performers working today. Dom takes Al through his history, as well as the history of street performing in Australia, in a conversation filled with a lifetime of stories from the pitch. So we're sitting here, it's October, uh, October 12th, well, October 13th in Australia. Sitting down with Dom Ferry, and he's in uh, Yamba, Australia, and I'm here in Boston. We're talking over Skype. I'm going to talk about uh, the history of street performing and some stories from the pitch. How's it going, Dom? It's going great, Al. It's going really good. Yeah, the sun is shining in sunny Australia. Well, I wanted to ask you first, um, just for a quick story, just a memorable moment or a magical moment that happened in a show. Early 90s, I was in a double act called Zip and Zap with Andy and myself. Uh, we had a, a, seek, a segment of the show where we put on coats. Mine was black, his was white. Kind of like Spy versus Spy or the Blues Brothers sort of scenario. We'd put on some music and we'd go and play with an audience. Um, at this stage, we have a crowd around us. It's all, everybody's into it. And this is on the Opera House forecourt, and there's a lot, always a lot of Japanese visitors. There's an elderly Japanese couple, and they're watching the show, and the guy's just going crazy with the camera. So at this stage, Andy goes over, we do the poses, and then Andy grabs the camera, you know, and puts it in the case. Everybody laughs. Yeah, Japanese guy's cool. Everything's fine. Uh, we substitute it for a real. This is these are the days before the uh, the um, digital cameras. These are the big heavy things. Yeah. And yeah. we had at that at that stage two or three different SLRs, old secondhand cameras in the case. So Andy pulls out another one that kind of looked like a pretty close real one, and then proceeds to juggle it with two clubs. Right. Does the high toss pirouette, uh, puts the hand out to catch the camera and misses. And the camera hits the deck and basically explodes. Right. And the guy just loses the plot completely. <laughs> <laughs> Chases us around the entire show for about for about five minutes. His wife is screaming, police, police. And the whole audience are in a state of shock. Some of them have figured it out and are just <laughs> laughing hysterically. Others are going, why? What did they do? What did they do? And then until, you know, I, I just let it go on and go on and go on right, while the guy's chasing Andy in a circle, as long as it's funny. And then it started to teeter on the edge of, of um, I got the whistle out, pulled out the real one and, and blew it. And the guy collapsed, the old oh, yeah. boy. He was like 55, 60. He was in the middle of the circle at the stage trying to catch Andy and he just collapsed on the ground and laughed. Uh. He just couldn't believe <laughs> it'd been done. And then for that minute, he was all over us. You know, it took us about five minutes to get the show 
stable again. Hundred more pictures. So a simple, <laughs> yeah, this is a simple camera gag that just went a little, little beyond the norm. All right, first thing I wanted to ask you about, I, I think street theater kind of began in Australia in '88, right? That was the official launch. But there had been, been people trying before that. Yeah, there were visionaries. I used to call them. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Nicholas. I don't know if you remember him. He later did a lot of stand-up comedy. He was on the Big Gig, which was um, Australia's answer. There was a <clears throat> television show in England that went off huge with um, Ben Elton and all those guys, the whole cream of comedy. Right. And that took a lot of street performers. But Glenn was, uh, at that stage, he'd been to Paris. He'd actually seen me in Pompidou in 85. And he'd seen that style of mime and got really attracted to it. Right. And was trying to do it in Adelaide. You had the Doug Anthony All Stars in Canberra. Oh, um, right. yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah, and Tim and those guys, and they were doing, you know, the music, uh, um, mischievous comedy stuff on the street. They were trying. Yeah, you had a few. You had a few street theatre companies, you know, Death Defying Theatre, um, those kind of things, based in Marrickville. They were just kicking, but you didn't really have street performers other than one or two who came in from the outside to test the waters. Right, right. Uh, and, and then realize that, yeah, no one's ever seen this stuff here and then moved on. How did, like, uh, Expo, like, decide that they were going to bring all these street performers and, and where did they find them all? The, they modeled themselves off the previous Expo, which was in Vancouver in 86. Right. And that one had used about 15 to 20 street acts. And that had been a big hit. Right. And when, when Australia is very good at mar at looking at how, you know, like the Olympics, for example, Sydney Olympics mm -hmm. did the same thing. They looked at all the other Olympics and took the best things that worked everywhere there and then tried to do it in Sydney. Uh, and that's exactly what Brisbane Expo did. They looked at that and they thought, okay, street theatre, how, how is that going to work? That looks good. And then they put the call out and they basically wanted, you know, 60 of the world's best. That was the, the draw 60. card. They had 60 acts working non, you know, over over three months. Wow. All, 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 a lot of, I came in via the back door. Uh, Expo had already been going for about a month and a half when I turned up. Yeah. I came in via the New Zealand Pavilion. Right. In the sense that uh, the New Zealand government flew Jane and I, who were doing a clown act at the time, Noodle and Strudel Clown Company. Uh -huh. uh, and we did shows to the, you know, the New Zealand Pavilion was pretty much the most popular one on the side at the time. Right. And it had queues for miles. And they put a stage out the front of it, and we just did 15-minute, uh, no no more, because you start, and people would be into it there, and that those people would go right around you. Right. And you'd finish it before it disappeared, so at least you, they got a sense of a beginning, middle, and an end. Right, right. So you kept it short. Um, and we line. just did bits. Yeah, work in the line. Nice. And Barbara Etzalon, the woman who was running um, the expo site, saw us and went, hey, you know, we've... We, we really need to build the uh, the local contingent up. They had, they they were on restrictions from Actors Equity or at the time going. You can only hire X amount of you know overseas without having X amount of Australians there, right, right. which is why all all the walk around stuff like Richie, for example, or Lucky Rich as we know him now, yes. um, started as a flowerpot guy. Nice. Uh, along with a lot, so 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 did Living Space. Anybody who had any form of vague theatrical training was, was dragged in so they could sign their name on a form. And instantly, uh, Barbara had enough Australian 
uh, um, employees to counter the international employees mm -hmm. to bring in more international acts. But, you know, the Lee Rosses, um, the Waldo and Woodheads, they were all contacted via, oh, yeah. via pitches, uh, via agents, uh, via the pre-US Expo, via word of mouth. You know, the Covent Garden knew about it. Faneuil Hall knew about it. Right, so consequently, right. put in, you know, put in, hey, we want to do it. And they'd look at it and went, yeah, yeah, come on over. Or, Who are some of the other big names that came out? Uh, the, ones, the ones that struck to memory, I mean, this is going back a while now, uh, from Canada, Lula Lay. I don't know if they're still doing it anymore. They were wild. They were kind of like, at that stage, it was a lot more theater and shows. Right. Uh, that was the most out of control high, uh, unicycle act I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. He was, well, she was madly blowing whistles and crazy instrument noises. They were as much uh, performance art clown as they were, you know, street. You had Scott and Joanna. Uh, I can't remember the name of the... He's, he was incredible. He's one of the best unicyclists I've ever seen. Uh, he, they would do a double act together and he, and he would just climb all over her whilst on a unicycle. It was, it was phenomenal. Right. Uh, David Lichtenstein came to that. Right. Uh, he'd do double acts with him every once in a while. Lee Ross, obviously. Uh, Noel Britton was there. Mm -hmm. uh, Noel was... Noel was a uh, huge influence in in, in Australia to to Australian uh, street theatre because he worked it solidly for for from Expo onwards for about till the early to mid nineties. Uh, he used to come over every every season. Right, very yeah, funny. So after Expo, yeah, well, kind of like more more people started coming to Australia and working different pitches. Well, we re it, it made such an impact. I mean, this Brisbane was a one horse town before mm. it. And suddenly you had, you know, the equivalent of Cirque du Soleil camp there for, for six months. People just uh, went crazy over it. There was a black roller skater called Roger G, who was from New York. Uh, he got adopted by a Brisbane farming couple. Right. They literally didn't want to leave him leave. You know, they wanted to hand over the farm to him. He was like, you couldn't believe this stuff. He stayed. He worked Circular Key for years before he went back to to Battery Park. It made such an influence that they flew in psychiatrists into into Brisbane to deal with uh, with 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 the people were spun, spinning out. The circus is gone when Expo stopped. Oh, everyone got like, There were people in the Brisbane Mall sitting on the ground for the next three months afterwards, every day waiting for a street show, wow. hoping a street up. It was just monstrous. Wow. That was... So for those of us who had a way into Australia at the time, and it was a lot more lenient than it is now, right. um, it was like, wow. A so... group of us, mainly the, the, the New Zealand contingent, uh, Dave Sheridan, Tara. Uh, Tara set up on the Gold Coast. Right. And, and walked into the, the huge plazas there like Raptors and went, I know how much you're spending on, a t on an ad in your local paper. Minimum five grand. Mm -hmm. You give me that five grand. And I'll put two street performers in, in, in your plaza every day for, you know, for a couple of hours. Right, right. And, yeah, sounds great. It'll draw way more people. You saw what it did at Expo. You, but you give me the money and we'll blow, you know, the Gold Coast. We'll make it huge. And all of a sudden, uh, Cowboy Mall, which was bigger, way bigger at that stage, right. had a potential as pitch, just became full-time for everybody. We'd go up occasionally. I mean, I, I, I went... You guys got the Gold Coast, so I'll quietly work on Sydney. After after Expo, it was like I went back to Europe for for a couple of months, 
So I didn't do, I did about a month and a half, two months at Expo. And then I went back to France. I had commitments in Paris. I had a van there, everything. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I did the rest of the European season because I've been doing that for a while then. Jane stayed in Australia. Yeah. Uh, she found an apartment in Sydney. And then when, when it came September, October in Paris, um, I parked up the van and all, all that, all the rest of it, and, and, and came back down. To, and then that's, meanwhile, the Kiwi guys had set up the Gold Coast. So right. suddenly there was work there. And I came down to Australia and went into Sydney and went, this is nice. Okay, let's start knocking on the doors of Sydney City Council and Darling Harbour. And Darling uh, Harbour just had... At that yeah. point, had you, how long had you been performing at that point? Like, what year did you start? I did my first street show ever in New Zealand, in Auckland, in 1994. 1984, 1984. 84. Right, so you already had a few years before uh, Expo came. Rough years. I mean, there isn't the level of us. Uh, you can learn a lot faster now for in, with a lot of ways. I mean, internet didn't exist. Uh, knowledge was, yeah, this is New Zealand, the other end of the world. Yeah. Um, so left New Zealand in 85 to, to, to try and discover more knowledge, basically realizing that if I stayed, if we stayed in New Zealand, I was working with Jane at the time, we stayed with Tony. We'd become like Jonathan Acor, great friend of mine, great performer, right. but, you know, back of all trades, master of none in a way. Uh, you become really good at doing kids' parties, uh, walk around, you know, private functions, right. all of that. But Roving you, characters but you and stuff. street so limited yeah. that you don't really master it as, a, as an art form. And I saw that there was potential then. And yeah. the only way you're going to learn it properly was to go and throw yourself in the Covent Gardens and the Pompidou's of the world and see what was happening. Yeah, yeah so your yeah. so so, first uh, trip overseas was, was to Europe, like uh, to France and England? First in America, did, did a year in the States. Oh, yeah? Where'd you go? Uh, uh, set up in San Francisco for for about eight months. Oh, nice. Worked if it, well, never did Pier Theatre 9, but worked the Cannery and the Anchorage in those two spots. They didn't quite know what to make of us. At that stage, the American formula, as it was, kind of like that slick routine that Michael Davis and all those guys had, had started many, many years was already a well-functioning machine, San Francisco style. And so when we turned up at the, at the time, the way we were doing street theater was completely different. Right. We were, well, uh, you know, yeah, you guys had never seen an American street performer before. So you I'd seen one. I'd only seen one as well. One guy from Switzerland originally, he went and spent a year in the States and right. absorbed all of that. Rene, his name was Rene. You may have met him. Rene. Oh, yeah. Rene from uh, Queenstown. Yeah, that's him. Right, yeah. That was the first uh, American style hardcore street performer I'd ever seen in Auckland. He turned up out of the blue and, and just did a couple of shows at a market there. And it was like, wow. He had a good energy at the time. It was like, we hadn't seen anything like that before. It was just like, wow. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a mind-blowing experience. Was that like kind of the golden time in Australia where you could just show up and just do rock and shows like anytime you wanted to? There was a lot less re- regulation. There was a lot less of us. Yeah, it was pretty golden. It was, you know, it was a magical time. I mean, for a start, it was, I call it the honeymoon period in a way where audiences had never seen us. Yeah. And so the things that were already passe in America, you could turn up here and people would just lap up. Whereas now there's there's more of an urban sophistication of, oh, yeah, yeah, we know what that's all about. So now when people walk past you in Darling Harbour, there's like, yeah, I know what the art form is. And so you have to be more subtle about it, I guess, or right. have something a bit more unique. 
Whereas in those days, it was like, oh my God, there's someone in the street and he's doing something. There's a guy what? talking to me and he's got props and he's, yeah, yeah. oh my God, hey, yeah. check you this guy out. say that to my children. Also, a lot less, you know, we're saturated these days. With, mm -hmm. with, you know, no one's walking around with staring at their screens, no, their yeah. personal computer street that didn't that didn't happen yeah the computer yeah. it world hadn't hit us you know mobile phones were were yet to come and were the size of a brick right. in the early 90s and uh early 90s who was who was around uh in sydney and uh where you were back then like who was coming up well yourself of course um, well i was late now actually but yeah yeah oh you're earlier than that i mean I, I remember the first time i i saw you and mitch yeah and i had Woody staying in my house and I was in Reservoir Street then, so that would have been 96. We were walking down on trolleys from, from Reservoir Street to, to Darling Harbour because I was only like a 10 minute walk. And we walked through the Chinese gardens on the way to, to, to the pitch and we walked past you guys. Oh, really? And you were doing Chinese gardens and that's when I stopped and went, you know, we're at the other end, come on down whenever you're ready. Right. Oh yeah, okay. Thanks, man, thanks. <laughs> William walked past me. Yeah, they seem a bit keen, don't they, Doc? <laughs> Good place to start. Wow, that's pretty funny. Yeah, I guess I guess yeah. we've you know we've been told to you know just kind of do the the pitch somewhere else before we did the the main pitch. You know, yeah. So we I mean we did yeah we did Circular Key. We're down in Melbourne doing Swanston Walk and Burke Street Mall and Chinese Gardens in Sydney. We had the first wave after Expo. You know, the most popular ones in Australia were all people who'd honed their craft elsewhere and bought it here. Nick yeah. Nicholas. Right. Just this, you know, young young kid straight out of Colton. Wayne and Nanny, the antibodies, they were phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, Lee Ross, Andrew Elliott had been quietly working and had learned it. And, uh, you know, had been doing shows around the world, Colton, Canada, turned up. And Andrew always worked places that nobody ever bothered to work. Right. Uh, or, you know, he was never one to, why should I cue at a pitch? I can go to somewhere else and do three shows. Right, right. Uh, it was, he was a real forerunner in that respect. Forrest was another one like that, but, you know, Off the but with park. a different swagger. I'll go and do the car park at Uluru. No one's <laughs> ever worked that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is true. No one ever had. Um, <laughs> Drew Franklin was, was coming over yeah, a lot at that Drew stage. Franklin, cool. Uh, he, he was, he was around at that, at that stage. And so many, so many more, but that was kind of like the, the core. And then, and we had a lot of visitors who ever, uh, Captain Kino would come over. We became, Australia became, you know, Sydney and the Gold Coast became the Covent Garden Holiday Resort. And is Sydney the place where you kind of like really honed your show or, or did that happen in France or where did you uh, really, uh, you know, make it work? For me personally as a street actor, it was Sydney. Yeah. Um, Europe was, was seriously hard work for me. I was a slow learner anyway and Pompidou is such a tough space. Is it? Yeah. It's I, it's it's gone now. It's it's history. Right. Very few people work now. It was killed by the drumming in the late nineties. Oh, um, what kind of drumming? The, you know, all, all the all the res, more and more residents started to move around them, move into little flats around, and and after six eight o'clock, you had drumming circles, and uh, right. the authorities stepped on it like a ton of bricks, and that kind of killed it. And also the fact that it didn't have a hardcore of performers like yourself now, the Faneuil, or the or the boys at Cop and. You know, you need a group of resident resident acts to to keep a, a pitch alive. Fight the fight. Without that, if, it, if it's just pass in, pass out, pass in, pass out, it doesn't have that regularity. You do see pitches come and go, 
Um, are you are you responsible for opening any pitches in Sydney? Um, yeah, Darling Harbour was me. Oh, really? Awesome. For a start. Yeah, yeah. They just had the bicentennial, so they had some money from the government. They didn't quite know what to do with it. Uh, and I sat down with Johnny Allen in, 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 in early, early 89, late 88, and went, let us come in. It, you know, you've seen the impact we had at Expo. You've heard about it. You've been there. You saw it. Um, we can do that here at no charge to you. Right. You can keep your money, and we just want to know that we can work it regularly in return. And, uh, darling, and it, took a, it took a lot of convincing. We actually put on two fake competitions. Right. Uh, Rolf Harris emceed the first one, and, and Paddy Bramwell's just took the piss, the, the, the piss out of him like you wouldn't believe. Oh, really? Not realizing that he was an Australian celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> audience were like and he couldn't he couldn't he couldn't understand like the hat was really low well yeah you had an australian idol up there as a volunteer and you just you know Ripped mercilessly him tore him to shreds oh, no. and everybody loves rolf you know so yeah we, we had to do this sort of stuff to prove that to them that you know this works people like it you know yeah. bring the board down and and eventually, after a lot of door knocking, they went, okay, let's try a trial period. The trial period was not where we, where you, where you started. The trial period was right outside Harborside, right out there. Yeah, right in front and of that the was amazing. Yeah, yeah, before the trains would go into the, go through it. It was right, it was, it was glorious. Right. You had that shade off that huge arch. You had uh, waitresses come down with, with trays and an ice cold water or you know at the end of shows it was it was amazing that was just the one pitch and we quietly worked it one after the after the other and then eventually it got to a degree that they went you know there's just too much we need you to move it down into the convention four court stuff no, and went right. okay fair enough. but the first year was basically uh uh darling harbour you know amphitheater and, uh, uh, next to it were you up, there up, by up yourself the or we was zip and zap then uh zip and zap did it um I did solo shows occasionally, but it was mainly Andy and me. Yeah. Uh, when were the Zip and Zap years? Got Zip and Zap formed in uh, January 89. Yeah. Uh, I'd just come in from Europe. Andy had just come in from busking China, Taiwan, Taipei, basically Asia. He'd gone with a, he'd you left, about he'd that done much, a, do oh, no. Nah. And he just, Hong Kong, he did, he got run out of Hong Kong. <laughs> he got arrested in Taipei. And he'd been working, he'd learned Mandarin, enough Mandarin to go around China and take the balls and the clubs out and right. stuff. So he was on a completely different track. He turned up, we were work. Circular Key was, MCA was, didn't exist then. Okay. Uh, Circular Key was that little place next to the, the where they were, you know, on the main walk, walkway through it. It had just been cobblestone. Uh, when I first saw Circular Key, it was a Dero hangout, you know, the right, home right. Was, like most train stations all over the world. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was the pits. Yeah, uh, that's what I saw it in '86 on the way to, uh, on '85 on the way to to America, and then with the bicentennial, they cleaned it all up. They cobblestoned it. They made it good. They ran out the the nasties, right. and suddenly we walked through it New to pitch. get to the opera. Right. Yeah. And suddenly we okay, let's work it, and it was perfect because it was you know just cross flow constant. And you would work and, the you would work in the middle center pitch. Yep. And on yeah, special man. days you'd work the yeah, step the, the opera. You had you had uh, well yeah that was that was kind of rare that that again took um, a couple of years of lobbying. Oh really? Uh, 
yeah, yeah, they were, there's no way. I mean, it's private property. Right. right. Uh, still, it's to this day. Uh, everything that goes on in the forecourt is purely by the sanction of the uh, Sydney Opera House Authority. So when oh, you were know, allowed to work there, maybe what, just on Australia Day or something? That was it, yep, on the Australia Days. But that didn't start until, well, until we built the fact that, okay, we, we, we're all comfortable, let's go for bigger spaces. It's like an it's, epic set of stairs, you know what I mean? Like, it's massive. You can fit 20,000 people on those stairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as some of those large street theatre companies and, you know, crowded... Crowded House got 120,000 people in that area. Wow. Uh, they put a stage there. They filled the steps all around. The whole, they had screens. People were up on the other side. You know, it was massive. So, you know, that's probably the largest crowd it's ever seen. But in, in, in our day, on an Australia day, we were doing shows to, you know, four or 5,000 people. Wow. That's uh, amazing. Which was a lot. As It took a, a half hour, three-quarter of an hour crowd pool before you, right. you even bothered to start. Yeah, you got to do that long, uh, slow pull. Yeah. Oh, it's enormous. Uh, for, it was it was a, a magical space for mimicry. Is that something that um, you learned in France, or when did that come yep. about? The first known examples I know of mimicry in the street theatre world, and I'm sure somebody would have would have done it beforehand. But the first common use was Paris. Right. Uh, and Paris, it was mainly done because of the fact that. Not all of us speak fluent French. We need to devise ways of, of growing crowds which were non-verbal. Right. Uh, and also because it was the, the centre. You know, all these people would go to Lecoq, the, the Lecoq School, to learn Commedia dell'arte yeah. and the basics of clown. Uh, Le Creux had a huge following. That's where the minds were. We're being, you know, we're being taught the basics of, you know, how to dislocate your body. So you had a few, you know, a few other smaller schools. Philippe Gaulier, I don't think, had started in that stage. Uh, so you had a, a large amount of non-French or outside performers coming, like Wayne and Nanny. Wayne and Nanny did uh, the antibodies started the street to pay for the schools, right? And to pay for their lifestyle, you know, their, you know, the, the, the expensive lifestyle in, in, in Paris. So a lot of a lot of people were heading the street as a way of testing what they were learning in the schools. Right. And as a way of draw, you know, trying to generate as much income as you could to, to pay for the for the tiny little apartment on the sixth floor, you know, uh, and and all the classes, and that's how they became, in a way, uh, a fusion pot. David Shiner was the first I ever saw do do mimicry. Right, I've only uh, ever seen and, a video of him, but yeah, he's pretty amazing. Yeah, he was. He was fearless. Paris cops were people not that you never messed with, and we were constantly. It just depended on the whim of the sergeant. And, what we'd get away with. And David, they, they, there was a police station right on the Pompidou on the top level, and then you had this slow-going-down piazza, which was the size of two football fields, and we'd work in one corner with an overhang over it so people could stop and look down. And the cops would go to the overhang and look down, and there was a drain pipe going up one side. And, and David did it the first couple of times, caught them by surprise, and after that they enjoyed the attention. And there was <laughs> and they turns and hanging right next to the drain pipe. And he would shimmy up the drain pipe and grab the cop's hat and swap it with his own, right. and then shimmy down, nice. and then parade out and be and be a cop, you know, yeah. you know pretend to swirl sticks, and, you know, and start messing with people in, in his <laughs> front edge. And the cops loved it because it was just a parody of them, and it made them look great. Right, right. And then you get them to do this to the to the man up there, sort of thing, and all that. And and they loved it. And so they became a part of the uh, part of the act. It was a lot of experimental stuff there. There was one guy whose name escapes me right now, but he was the first to develop the concept of slow-mo. And he would start 
right down the bottom of the piazza and purely walk up to the top. That was Slow the motion. end. Slow motion. Slow oh, motion. And by wow. the time he got to the top, he had a huge crowd. Right, enormous, right. Until he got to the very edge of that crowd and then just in slow-mo, just take this hat off and hand it to the guy and then mimic the coin. And the guy would put in, you know, the audience member would put a, a donation. Right. And then it just got passed around this entire crowd. Wow, that's cool. And he would just quietly walk back to the center and watch... And then when I'd been around the entire crowd, someone would walk out, give it to him, and he would bow, and everybody would applaud. I like and the that idea the of like a show that just happens, and there's no, um, there's no, people don't know it's happening, or oh, is this a show? What is this? And then it just like ends like that, you know? Like it's not like you're oh, okay. I'm here to do a show, everyone. Like it's just it's already happening. No, it was completely, it was yeah. completely hypnotic. People were caught up in it. This guy was just James Dujardin, I think his name was. Right, and he was so focused on the, uh, you know, internally that no one felt threatened, and everybody was just, you know, this is before it was like la 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 and all of that. Yeah, yeah, um, cracking the, the whip. Only, yeah. The only other people who were using it with the were what the French call the cocheur, uh, the, the fire spitters. Right, coche French is literally to spit, and it became a derogatory term because a lot of the alkies, um, you know, the homeless of Paris. Would learn how to go with you know with, with Kero or lighter fluid or whatever, oh, and generate cool. enough coins to, you know, yeah, whatever they could find, and they generate enough, um, you know, income to buy the next bottle of wine. That's right, how they kept right. themselves alive. Um, but there was some who took it a little further. Um, one of the greatest characters at Pompidou was a guy called Ludo. Ludo was huge. Ludo yeah, I was about, about six this guy. six. Yeah, he kind of ran the pitch, right? He did. He was he was pretty notorious. Yeah. He was ex-French um, Army. Actually, uh, Silva, he had talked about Ludo in uh, his interview, actually. Yeah, that's where I heard about that. Ludo was six foot six and built like a bear. Yeah. And, and been, he'd been in a bomb blast uh, in Algeria. Like a war or something? Yeah, yeah. He'd, he'd been French military. He'd been right. full on. He'd, had, he'd been in a bomb you know, on the edge of one, and it had blown out the front of his stomach. He went to surgery. And they, you know, put a new lining on the front. And all of a sudden, he lost all sensation. The skin slowly grew up, you know, and, and, and you know, he was eating fine. His, his right. system recuperated. But he had this huge patch of skin on the no front feeling. of him. No feeling. And one of, one, of, one of his bits was to get pretty Swedish or, or German tourists. He'd give them darts. <laughs> and he'd stand there with a human dartboard. Right. In, in his three phrases of German, Swiss, French, Spanish, whatever, go, oh, and he was such a monstrous man that you know he he, he dominated you by simply the force of, of his character. He was he was a, he was forced to be reckoned with, man. Right, right. I saw him attack you know chase away performers of the nine bar if you wow. dared start a shoot. When, Can't do when that shit on. anymore, can you? <laughs> <laughs> well, possibly not. No, but you know they did something terrible. They used to work on the corner where the whole of the cross flow came into the piazza. Mm-hmm. So in summer, it didn't matter. There were you know, like 10,000 people walking around Pompidou. We'd tolerate the fact that there was this huge blockage up the top there. Yeah. Everybody would stand down to other ways to get down to, the, to watch the more interesting stuff. Um, but up the top there with Ludo and his, and his cocheur mates, uh, in winter, it was death. Right. You know, because there were so few people around. 
that it was just like a knot that would just congest the front door and no, no one would walk in. So he would get everyone and that was it? Yeah, basically, and we'd have to wait for, for them to leave. Or occasionally, some of us could, you know, with enough French, would walk up and go, hey, Ludo, you can't have it all to yourself, mate. <clears throat> you need to share it. So you would uh, you would go up to um, to Paris in, in the summertime there and then spend the rest of your time in Australia, in Sydney, in the summertime there, right? I lived in Paris for three years, uh, between 85 and 88. Right, your French uh, is good, right? Yeah, I was born, I was, I was lucky to the degree, but my mother taught me. Right. Oh, nice. So when you got there, you already had it. Fluent. Beauty. That's well, awesome. That, uh, in some ways, I wish I hadn't been, because it was those with uh, with an accent that way that, you know, they didn't sound like they were local guys who, who were way more popular. If you sounded like you were born around the corner, they didn't want to know about you, because my, my parents were Parisians. You know, the first language I, I, I could speak. Oh, I, wow. I, I knew French before I knew English, uh, and it's never left me. When I started doing shows, I was like, come on down, you know, I was like, oh, he's one of us. Right, Because right. I wasn't. Wasn't that... Uh, was like, oh, that's right. Yeah, bullshit. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> bullshit. Yeah. No one believes it. Yeah. And uh, so you worked with Andy for a few years, and what, mid-90s, you went solo? Andy, Andy and I worked um, eight years together, from 89 to... Whatever the math is there, 96, 97. Yeah, yeah. And and just in Australia or all over, like, did you do the Canadian circuit uh, or anything? Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, no. Dick Finkel was running Edmonton at that stage. Yeah. And that never happened, even though there were letters back and forth for, and emails back and forth for ages. No, we never did Canada. Right, right. Uh, we did Europe uh, quite a bit. Edinburgh? Yeah, we did Edinburgh. Yeah, standing standing ovations on the mound. That was that's, that was one memory that I'll never forget. Yeah, Edinburgh uh, back in the day. I mean, <laughs> I uh, I only did it. I did it one time in '98 when you know before the whole draw system and everything. When it was like a lineup and you could do if you wanted to work hard, you could do like five or six shows a day, and it was amazing. But every time I've been there since, it's uh, the draw and there's 60 street performers, and you get one show, and it's kind of it's a fun time now, but it's not like uh, really worth going anymore for me anyway. It's it wasn't as definitely not as as, uh, as many performers then. We only had the mount, right? Uh, so basically, it was just like a one pitch. You know, a few of us would fly pitch further down the mound when some of the musos weren't working. Yeah, uh, we used to have terrible problems with the Bolivia. Oh, they turn up with generate right, and drown right. us out. Musicians, yeah. I remember one yeah one year running through. The Brazilians while they were playing with fire torches, oh, yeah. burning their asses, running behind them with a torch and burning oh, their geez. asses. Yeah, they would set up right next to the pitch with a bum 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 to run their PA, uh, and they were just so. Bad. And when those stages, you know, radio mics hadn't read, weren't weren't really huge. Yeah, remember the first the first year we had amplification at 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 Edinburgh, uh, at Edinburgh Pepe. Rex and I sat there and put the mouse out with a radio mic and just drew a crowd. Right. Just the mic. The and mi- got this the kid m- come mighty out. mouse. What was, is that what it was? Yeah, just it. That's it. The yeah. mighty mouse. I had one of those. So everybody gathered to, to listen to this box, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and they, we got a kid to come out and do an entire show. And then we got the kid to bottle it. Oh, wow. And, and we, you know, we, we, we just sat there quietly. No, nobody knew who the voices were. We were just passing the mic to each other. Right, right. And making the kid the show. And this kid, 
walked home with this, you know, like 50 quid or whatever. And the next day, it's, his, his dad turned up the next day with a kid by the ear and, 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 and turned up on the, on the pitch and went, my fucking son said that you guys, he earned this money here. Well, I want to know where he nicked it from. And we're going, no, no, it's true. He did a show. <laughs> he walked through a show and his father just could not believe it. That's cool. And now that boy is the space cowboy. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Yeah. He, he definitely hung around us a lot afterwards. He watched every move, so who knows? He could have become, he right. could have become one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The Space Cowboy came down as a kid. I remember him turning up uh, in Darling Harbour. MCA was the first time I met Shane. Oh yeah. We were just starting the MCA pitch, and he said he came down. Yeah, there was there was funny. There's so many of them you, you you met when they were just at that crucial age. And he had, and he had already everything. started. Like he had a show already by then. Yeah. He had, he had he had kind of he had it kind of figured. Wow, that's awesome! And then he and then he had the combi that he'd go up and down from Byron all the time. Yeah, yeah. Cow skin. It was all in cow. Everything was painted in. Yeah, yeah, was, I remember uh, that. Space cowboy. Yeah. yeah, that was cool. So yeah, I mean, I came on the scene in '96 with Mitch, and then '97 by myself, and and uh, you know I, I got taught you know by you and JP and AJ and those guys. So those guys all started coming like the early '90s. I mean, we, I, I realized that you know, to, to be one of the few here was, was literally, a, a, well, it was great. It was, a, it, was, it was a great lifestyle. Yeah. Sydney was a really nice town, man. Sydney was only about three and a half million. Right. Um, you, you could drive across the bridge virtually at any time of the day. Oh, the old, didn't you do the a show on the Harbour Bridge? Yes, yes. Okay, you need to tell me that story. So the Harbour Bridge is like a, a world-famous they, they closed it. Yeah, it's it's this huge, you know, icon of Australia. I remember in my youth when they closed the Harbour Bridge one day and there was people on it. And uh it was before I'd ever even heard of street performing or whatever, but but yeah, you and you did a show there. Yeah, it was uh, I think ninety one. <laughs> awesome. uh, and we heard they were gonna close it for us for some charity. It was a walk across for some charity. Yeah. And we went, Hell, let's go busket. The cops turned up. I have this great photo of this huge cop bearing down on Andy while I'm doing, I'm running around doing mimicry, drawing yeah. the crowd. Yeah. And Andy's going, "Oh, it's all right. We'll be." You know, he was really good at dealing with cops. It's okay. We'll only we'll only be about twenty minutes, half an hour. We'll make sure everybody can walk, you know, along the sides. We'll be really good, Mister Policeman. Leave us alone. And the guy went, "Okay, fair enough." They rode in at the end with horses. I thought that was a bit heavy. Oh. Uh, they stopped the show. They didn't. They didn't stop it. Uh, but at the stage where we were gathering money. We got the first wave of everybody rushing over. Yeah. And then uh, as the second wave started, these guys came in on horses. So you only got to do yeah. one show. Yep. And that's probably yep. the only show that ever happened on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if anybody else has done it as, as yet. We, we did it by, we, we tried in the middle right. and then realized it was just block it off. And what about, yeah, um, what about Manly? What about the amphitheater? Did you uh, do a lot of shows over there? Yeah, before Manly Authority, before Manly Council lost the plot. Got to realize too that this was a, a stage where there was no sun hassles. Everybody was so happy to sit in the sun right. for hours on end. We, we, you'd do shows in, in, in the Manly Amphitheater in about 35 to 40 degrees and because there was a sea breeze coming through, people would just sit there happily and uh, it was a different crowd. It was a, it was a nicer crowd. It was a rougher crowd in some ways. Right. It was more working class. The only time I've, I've you know, one of the, the only time I've ever physically been threatened in Sydney would was Manly, ever. Right. ever. I actually got knocked, knocked down by a, 
an 80-year-old Maltese guy right. uh, doing mimicry. So at this stage, it was huge that we had the whole, you know, everybody, the amphitheater was pretty, the inside part was all full virtually. Yeah. Uh, and a little crowd above because they loved it. And I followed this old guy, big solid guy, and, you know, he was walking really slowly, wondering why all these thousands of people were just like <laughs> laughing at him. And I was like behind him. Then he turned around and he realized and he just went whack. Oh, really? He I hit the deck hard. Yeah. And you know, stars spinning sort of thing. Oh, no. And, and, Andy, and Andy came running up. You okay? And I went, yeah, yeah, just do the fight. Start the fire now. I'll catch my breath and I'll be fine. And, so, you know, he disappeared. The first thing I did, I remember actually, when I hit the deck, the hand was, one hand to stop me from, from, from hurting myself, and the other hand was to, no, 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 because three blokes instantly stood up wanting to hammer him. Right, right, so right. So I mean, essence of entertainment, they saw him hit me, and they went, right, he's for it. And I just saw three big guys stand up, you know, and the hands go up, and I went, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> every, every situation that happens like that in the street, you have to, you have to treat it with positivity. You can't, you can't um, take on the negativity because otherwise you turn the crowd, you know? Yeah, completely. So you still yeah, got to be, be the character. You've got to be the clown yeah. and just go, oh, whoops, you hit me, you know? Well, that's the beauty of, of, of having two of us. Andy could just turn on a tape deck and pour out three torches and, and you know, boom, boom, tape decks in those days. Right, tape, tape deck on the street. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. And so um, so what happened with the uh, Manly um, Council? They, they had enough of it? Or they what? got greedy. They got they got greedy in in, in uh, the uh, it was it was fine as a pitch. We had to get permits, which is fair enough at the time. The first thing that happened was that a lovely uh, Maori guitarist who lived in Manly for years called Tom, an old lady tripped over his guitar case in the early nineties, fell flat in her face, and she sued Manly Council for the dental work. And instantly Manly Council went, "Oh shit, we are liable for this stuff." So instantly they brought in. Um, this is just before the public liability storm started in right. Australia. And that started in 93, 94, which kind of decimated the events industry in, the, in that country in a major way. You know, Australia lost two-thirds of all the events that happened over the, over the space of a year. Public liability just, just wow. whacked it. Well, Duck for Cover started around, you know, 94, I think it was, when, when a group of us went, the only way we can do this is to have this insurance, and the only way we can have this insurance is to convince an insurer that even though we use the most dangerous things known to man on the planet in our shows, we don't have accidents. And if your insurance is one group, then you can then we can afford to do it. Who who started if, that, if, and how did they um, convince an insurance company that that was the truth? It started in Melbourne. I remember the first meeting was in the pub opposite Flinders Station with Peter Voices as the chair. They all created this duck for cover group and went shopping. And one insurance company went, "Yeah, yeah, we'll take the gamble." Sounds like a good incentive. You've got how many performers? Hundreds. We'll all send you money to pay for one. We're all in the one policy. Right, right. And we were just praying to God that some, you know, buyer and fire twirler didn't burn some somebody. This was after the big uh, Gold Coast incident. Right. Do you want to tell that story? Yeah, yeah. I guess it's history now. It was 1990, I think it was. Were you around? Yeah, yeah. I was in Sydney. Uh, at that stage, Cavermore had become... Everybody from, from January, you had three or four acts from Coffin that would fly over just for that. Right. Uh, uh, Brendan Foley ran it. He'd, he'd find a, a cheap house that council would rent and everybody would live in it. Oh, okay. Uh, so Angus was there that year. The mechanical magician, Tom, um, a lovely man who lives in Belgium. Uh, yeah, and, and Nick, 
and Petra. Nick was doing shows. Uh, he was in love with Petra at the time. It was all that that period. And I wasn't I wasn't there at the time when it happened. I was in Sydney. There'd been a big party and when when had there not been uh, the <laughs> night before. Nick was first on on the draw that that day. Woke up. Oh god, gotta go do a show. It's you know like 35, 40 degrees. Hopped in a cab. Got halfway to to Cavill and realised that oh I don't have any fuel for my torches. Right. Walked into a you know Seven Eleven. Um, the only thing they had was lighter fluid. I uh, couldn't get any caro. Right. Went oh shit that took lighter fluid to the pitch. Uh, at that stage, many of us were you know or the less fired you conscious of us. Lee Ross was the first to bring in the Nalgene rule, which I thought was great. But everybody was using cups from McDonald's or whatever. You put you... a plastic a paper cup and to dip your torch in. Right, right. You'd fill it with the fluid, put it on a space and dip. You'd get knocked over periodically and all the rest of it. Yeah, But yeah, with Kira, pretty it left marks. It, yeah. was, it was ugly, it left marks, but... Uh, catch on fire. Yeah, yeah. Oh, anyway, funny. Nick turned up, half jaded, needed to do a show, was using fire as a crowd draw, filled a cup of lighter fluid, put the torch in, lit it, blah, blah, blah. It was quite a windy day. A group of Japanese tourists stopped to watch and... One young young girl, about early 20s, stood directly in front of the cup. The wind came howling down um, Cavill Mall, knocked the cup over, and it became a pool down at her feet. Ooh. Nick didn't realise. Right. And got her to hold the torch oh. up high. Right. There was a line at the time. You'd get somebody in the crowd to hold the fire up high. And then we'll run around going, hey, people, person on fire, you know. And, and, you know the fumes from um, the lighter fluid travelled up, reached the flame, and she just became a ball of oh, flame. Crap. David Gilman, that was his name, David Gilman, the mechanical magician, yeah. was having a cup of coffee on the bench behind the pitch, had a big, huge overcoat, and was the first to spot her. Yeah, He just over. knocked over his, his coffee, grabbed his coat, and literally lapped on her. Nice. Took her down in a rugby tackle and tried to put her out. Nick ran at the same time. He, he got severe. Nick got severe burns all over his hands. Right, right. And did they Tried get that put her out? No. Well, yeah, more or less. But right. at that stage, she had third, third degree massive burns. Oh, massive. Jesus. Uh, ambulances came. She was taken to Southport Hospital instantly. Yeah. The doctors went, all right, there's fuck all we can do about this except pump her full of morphine. Her family were affluent. And they flew her out of uh, Australia within 24 hours to Japan right. for plastic surgery. She, uh, her family never complained. There was no recourse. Right. Uh, and, you know, the media heard about it, obviously. And yeah. it made front page. The, it made front page of the, the Courier Mail in Brisbane the following morning. Yeah. Uh, I just remember headline, you know, street performer burns Japanese tourist, you know. Instantly, the you know once the media got hold of it, everybody was like, "Oh, oh my God!" You know, and uh, the mayor instantly closed Cavill Mall down for good, um, like for any show, not just fire. Yeah, everything. Everybody, everybody was instantly closed down. And you know, the mayor, mayor of of, of the Gold Coast came on on, on public television and the news that night and went, "Look, look, you know, we're really sorry. Our condolences to to." To the woman, we hire these guys to, to, to do this sort of stuff. And, you know, sadly, stuff can go wrong. And, and, and we're really sad it happened, but we stand by them. Uh, they're professionals. They've done this over the world. And uh, we will continue our program after a day or two. And they did. Right. Cameron will kick back off again. And, but Brisbane 
bad fire forever. Yeah, and same. I mean, same here. Back. Faneuil Hall, like it just it, it caused like a, a a wave of banning fire all over the world. Different pictures, and then like the story, uh, the story is always changing. It's like you know, Faneuil Hall, the management who are there now, they weren't there around then. They're like brand new. They've been there a couple of years, and they're like, oh yeah, this oh there was an incident here in 1990, and someone got burned. And I'm like, no, 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 it wasn't here. <laughs> It was you know, Australia. Yeah, it was in freaking Australia, mate. You know, it was just unfortunate set of circumstances. It could have been any any one of us. You know, oh yeah. In some cases, there were there were half a dozen other performers who was just as lackadaisical with their approach to fire working that space at that time. Yeah, and it could have been any one of. It was just you get comfortable, you get lazy, you get caught in your routines, you get you know you get you get ritualized, and all of a sudden, bang, something wakes you up out of the blue. Um, there hasn't been a lot of big incidents like that, has there? I've actually watched, I turned up on a, uh, there was there was a space, a man died on a pitch in front of us with fire in Avignon. In Avignon? Uh, Avignon, Avignon was the French equivalent of the Edinburgh Festival on right. in July every year. There was an alcoholic there, a local alcoholic there, whose, whose body was pretty much almost on the way out anyway. Right. You know, he was probably dying of sclerosis of the liver and everything else. But he used to die, we, you know, we'd tolerate him before we'd start up to go and do some crap out there. You know, before before we kick off the evening program, and he was farting around there, and he swallowed when it, when he went to eat eat the fire. He was on his knees, small crowd going, "I will eat the fire. It will be fantastic." <laughs> he, he, he put flame in his mouth, and instead of blowing out as you do when you have a large flame in your mouth, uh, he sucked it into his stomach, Ooh. and the flame went straight down there. Didn't have anywhere to go. Intermixed with all the fuel, all, all the uh, alcohol that had been in his stomach for the last, you know, ten years, oh and went God. right. That's it. I'm just going to go bang, <laughs> and his stomach exploded inside his body. And oh my God! Just, inside his body, in front of a crowd on the pitch, oh. and he just slumped into a heap. You know, I was talking to to Narbul. Yeah, I should talk about Narbul in a second. But um, first guy ever used Diablo in the street. You know, we were talking, and all of a sudden. There was somebody had spotted it in this crowd that it wasn't, and there was a cry from the crowd. Oh, you know, more more like that. Yeah. And we turned around and he was just lumped on the ground like this. Whoa. So he thought, oh yeah. And after a minute or two, where he hadn't moved, one of us went over and went, you know, you okay? You're right. And you know, the body had just stopped. Basically. Yeah. And some some local copper came out and realised that the guy was dead. They called an ambulance. Everything stopped, and they banned fire. Right. For for a year. In, in, in Avignon, they banned fire until the following year, and then everybody could use it again. But it screwed screwed uh, all the fire jugglers up that, that, that summer, anybody yeah. who was used to using fire. You know, I, know, I only know of other, you know, one other person, obviously, that's died during a show was Wayne. Do you know of any others like that, or were you around for that? I wasn't in, uh, Lee Ross was in the crowd when that happened. Wayne was a good friend, and, 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 and uh, it, it completely, completely knocked, knocked the shit out of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, especially at, a, at you know in a town like Edmonton. Yeah. Uh, I was sitting with Dick one 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 afternoon years later when he uh, and he, as he told me you know the effect that it had on his festival. Yeah. Which is massive because you know Wayne was huge a, a huge character incredibly well liked a lovely man. Yeah. I've never seen time like him. I I you know to me he has no equal. He could what he could do with his body has not yet been 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 accomplished by. Anyone, you know, there might be students that, that have done that since, or, you know, or decrew disciples that have worked in companies in France that I haven't seen. Mm -hmm. But, man, it was the first street show 
that made people cry. Wow. And not only just laugh, but people would cry at the end. They were so emotionally involved mm -hmm. that at the end, it was such a gripping tale. Mm -hmm. uh, he had a, a hard-ass attitude about it. He didn't read necessarily uh, his audiences all that well. One year, a friend of mine called Pitch, Swiss, uh, Swiss guy, he'd started up a, an Auckland street performance festival in the early uh, 90s, and antibodies um, and zip and zap were hired. And it was in this new Chinese um, market. And part of the deal was we had to do walk-around during the day. To, yeah. to generate the spot for money. So, you know, Andy and I would walk around coats for an hour and do our, do our gags, and it was fine. And Wayne, Wayne would walk around and do mimicry, but it was just the wrong environment for it. Right. And he just got so angry. Yeah. <laughs> he would go, oh, you don't get the joke. What's wrong with you, you fat ass? You know? It was from the French character. He'd, he'd adopted it from right. when, when people got angry at him in France because he was right there as a mimic. Most of us developed a distance for safety. You know, the amount of time. Right, you get an elbow in the face. Yeah, yeah, a lot of us would get that. And, you know, I, I had it done to me about 10 times, but I was always that, you know, yeah. It is really funny when, when you, for someone's doing a really close mimic, close follow, when it's yeah, just right like time. centimeters. Right it's like, oh, my God, yeah. how, I, how does that person not notice that this guy yeah, yeah. is right behind him? Something where you can slowly work your way in. Yeah. The most testifying moment of mimicry for me yeah. was in Auckland that year. And we'd work outside, right down the bottom of, of, of uh, Queen Street. Yeah. Huge yards are in front of the post office. And there were a lot of gangs in New Zealand, Black Power, Mungle Mob. And uh, they used to hang out and watch. And then one huge Polynesian guy uh, walked through a, a zip and zap thing. And I went, yeah, fuck it, I'm going to do it. So I grabbed, I grabbed my sonnies and just mimicked him right behind him as he walked ponderously like a giant ape through the space. <laughs> and I'm right behind him. Everybody's just cracking up half in fear of how dare you, because these guys are, you know, are laws unto themselves in New Zealand. How dare you take on this guy? Right. I was right there. And halfway through, he stopped because he realized that all this attention was on him and it was for something else other than just him. And then he slowly turned around and he saw me. And our faces just got closer and closer. And closer. <laughs> I couldn't see his eyes. His eyes are the ones that tell you, you know, that what 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 those people are going to do. You can watch, and you know instantly. The eyes will reveal that before oh, that yeah. happens. And I can't see him because he's got black sunglasses, sunnies on. Right. And we just get our faces are just closer and closer and closer until we got nose to nose. And then he hung him. He gave me a hug. Which is the mouth reading where you rub noses together yeah, on a right. eye, greet, and that huge amount of tension. Oh my God, Dom's going to get pulverized by this six foot six Polynesian. He's going to kill him, and I'm going. I'm going to go for this. I'm going to get killed. It's worth it. This is just so cool. And you know, and, and then we just rub noses, and we just you know just hug. <laughs> you know, I put his hand in the air and give, give him a huge round of applause. Man, this nice. is awesome. That was great. Oh, that was cool. that was a free moment for me, man. Yeah, um, those guys didn't want to mess with them. Had a helicopter land in my show once. What? How'd that happen? We're working Pompidou. Pompidou is a huge piazza in Paris. Right. On Sundays, it would just fill up. Everybody would, would go and hang out. When If you're looking at it from the air, all you're seeing is circles and a giant space. It fronts on a giant building. It's a free library. Someone in the building has a heart attack. Instantly, the call is out. We need to get them to a hospital as fast as possible. It's Sunday. It's 2 or 3 in the afternoon. 
the only way they can do it is to bring in a chopper. So helicopter arrives to Pompidou to land somewhere. They look for the closest circle. There's these, all these circles <laughs> with just one person in the middle. <laughs> oh, no. And, and they look for the closest one to the doors, and they just landed. And, we, and, you know, the guy runs out and goes, you know, we're going to be here for about four or five minutes. Sorry, sorry for the inconvenience. We need to get in the center. I went, okay, that's fine. Do you mind if I play? No, no, it's all. So I'm cleaning the windows of the helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> trying to sell rides onto it and stuff like this sort of thing. And meanwhile, my crowd's man monster. <laughs> oh, Every other show is on, 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 on the piazza is died because, you know, how can you compete with a helicopter? Right. You know, every, every other circle has virtually stopped. And, you know, it's just like this monster crowd around the helicopter and everybody's talking and it's just crazy. You know? One loss I think we've, we've suffered. We've suffered a few losses in the busking well. But there's an art form that seems to have disappeared somewhat. Did you ever read Ben Mason's book? No. But Mason was a teacher of circus arts and street theatre in the uh, in the circus school of Bristol in England. All right. And came out with the first book on, on street theatre and covering not only buskers, which he put in the entertainment category, but also, you know, the the Royal de Luxes and all the big, huge street theatre companies. Right. And he came out with a tag which was really apt. He, he said there was one side... The world has gone a lot, a lot more politically correct now, so I think that's why it's phased out. But there was one kind of street theatre called what he called les provocateurs or the provocateurs. Right. And that encompassed Chris Lynham. Yeah, yeah. This uh, Kino at times. Kino, Pepe. Uh, Pepe, not so much. Pepe was was still, yeah, on on the edge, but you know, he, it's it's pushing a reaction, but not going quite to the degree as the other guys the line did. Anymore. And, yeah, yeah, and, and you know. Those guys, there was there was this one guy too whose name escapes me, who still gets hired by street theatre festivals yeah. to do completely outrageous stuff. Oh, Leo uh, Bassi? You know, that's it, Leo Bassi, Leo yeah. Bassi, you know, who, who went way beyond any of us, you know. Yeah. But even Chris, you know, I, I, I watched, there was in Zurich one year, there was a s- sausage festival yeah. in the Niederstrasse. The Niederstrasse was, was where, you know, the only, the only pitch other than when Zurich Theater Spectacle was on, but the, 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 that was their, their kind of circular key sort of thing. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, the whole street, Strasse, had been put tables and chairs and everybody, you know, there'd be, there'd be, everybody would go into all these places and get this food and, you know, it was impossible to work. And Chris really needed money, so he decided to clear an area. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a starter pistol that looked remarkably like a forty four Magnum. Right. And he had, you know, blanks that sounded oh, exactly what? like gunshots. <laughs> and he stood up on one of these tables going, All right, I need everybody to clear space now so I can do a show. And they all laughed at him. And he took his pistol out of the end and fired it twice in the air. Literally cleared the whole space in two seconds. Because oh it's goodness. a Swiss, very calm and gentil and stuff. Yeah. And it, you know, the show didn't quite work because, that, you know, the audience had left the street. Right, yeah. Get a crowd yeah, by shooting a gun off in the air. <laughs> Wait, come here! <laughs> <laughs> At one stage, there was a little cafe down uh, in Zurich Theater Spectacle. For some reason, I can't remember why, but he, he, he decided to create the sculpture by using the furniture. And he just 
grabbed the furniture and threw it all in giant heat. And so you had this mound of broken chairs and tables. <laughs> and, there were, and, and this huge guy with the, you know, with the apron on who'd been running his cafe, white, going, what the fuck's he doing? Why is he destroying my cafe? What's he doing? <laughs> Chris and the going, I'm going to do another one right on the top. <laughs> just <laughs> all the the chair and climb, and he just wanted to climb up there and go, I am a god, you know. <laughs> and it was just wild. It was, you know, I'm going to, to destroy this cafe as a crowd drawing exercise. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. No, no, you, just, no. you can't really do things like that anymore. I mean, I heard stories about Kino no. doing no. stuff like that. Yeah, people are just too sensitive now, you know? Even sometimes I find myself in my show now being like, ah, look, I'm from Australia. I'm not as sensitive as you guys, so sorry about that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you have to. You have to sort of... These guys weren't... It wasn't a monetary thing at the time. It was like people would watch riveted in fear right. that they'd notice him. They wouldn't move in fear that he would see them. Right, right. You know, he was the first to... I'm going to tell you your future. Grab someone, rip their shoe off, and go, here's your future. You're going to go for a long fucking walk. (laughs) (laughs) Throw the shoe. I think Chris got away with it to the degree that, okay, it's weirdly funny in a strange way. And this poor person would be going, you just spat on my shoe and now I have to walk 60 yards. You know, (laughs) it was... It was, there's no way you could do that now. Yeah. Yeah. His, his ballad, uh, he ended with the, it was a mime thing that, that Shiner started, where you took people out of the audience uh-huh. as volunteers, you got them warmed up, and then you gave them a story. Right. And they would all act parts of the story, and you were the director. And Chris's was the ballad of Frankie and Johnny. Oh, yeah? Which was a love affair, wrong about the guy who comes home from the pub drunk and, you know, to find, you know, his wife in full fling with someone else. You know, that was the scenario. Yeah. And he would try to get the volunteers to act it out. Drunk, mate. I mean, you seem drunk. You don't walk like this. You're all over the place, you know. And then, you know, hit her. She's just screwed your neighbor. Hit her. Right. <laughs> Spit on her like this. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was full on. He got away with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sure he's mellowed down somewhat. I mean, he's time, definitely I'm... still out there. Uh, I see his name come up some, from time to time, you know, he's doing gigs here and there. Yeah, no. Uh... Well, what a finale, yeah. <laughs> No yeah. one's going to rip that one. No, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and well, yeah. Pepe did uh, a, a, a story at the end of his show, and Lee Ross too, yep. right? Yeah, the first stories. one was David Shiner. David Shiner. David right. Shiner. And in fact, there was a, a Korean guy called Kim, who uh huge tall man. Mm-hmm. He became a street performer for a while, and he decided that David was going to be the model in Paris, mm-hmm. and he would do exactly what David did, and he could make a bucket load of money, and it worked. But he never understood what he was actually doing as a finale. He never realized that it was a movie. Oh, right. He thought the guy walking around like this, you know, David had a guy with a boom mic, and would go, you are holding the mic, you know, all in mind, you are the mic, you know, there was no prop. You have to run around like this behind them so that we can hear, you know. Right. And this right. was the cue. You just step in. Oh, very good, you know. He had a few pet moves to, for him to do. You know? Yeah. And everyone, while well, he'd have to move around. Kim thought the guy was fishing. <laughs> so he's in the middle emulating the story, you know. Oh, oh, you know. 
you know, the love story between two two lovers type scenario. And then there's a guy fishing. Keep fishing, keep fishing, keep fishing. And the rest of us in the background watching this are going, you have no idea. You get it. You, have, it was just, you don't get it, you know. Right. He's turning a camera. He's not <laughs> waving at the queen. He's turning a camera. Yeah. He's, he's not fishing. He's holding a boom mic, you know. It's just it's just bizarre how things get borrowed. And, and yet Kim did phenomenally out, well out of it. Yeah. He had the most unusual crowd draw I've ever seen. He would dress up as a samurai. He was really tall. He was about seven foot. He was Korean. He had a long black hair. He would come down to Pompidou with a posse of beautiful women, and he had a silver bucket for the money. Oh, yeah? That was real boss, you know. He was making, he was making that much. Um, and he would, he would come down, and these beautiful women just pose in the back until he'd start, and then would slowly the crowd was here, and then they'd disappear, go shopping, I don't know. And he would... Start off with a huge yell to get attention. Right. He'd face the building down the bottom. There's people walking away, like walking around, like, you know, 20, 30, 15, 100 meters away in their own well. He would face the center, walk out slowly. And this is where the William Lee thing came from. Right. And uh, he would just face the world and just scream at the top of his lungs. <laughs> yeah! About a minute, a minute and a half until you pass out, wow. and everybody would just be rooted in this, this this samurai guy with a hair and a ponytail, and he had the you know the, the front the samurai had, and, yeah. and the whole thing was. And then he would kneel, and he would pull out two uh, five franc French coins mm-hmm. and them up, and that was a, a, a subtle way of nobody could see what the fuck they were, so they all got closer. You're right, yeah. And then he would hold one. And in slow motion, bring the other one on it, balance it. So you had, you know, two feet, think of uh, two feet, Australian 50 cent coins, but round that size. Uh, and one would balance on the other. And then slowly, you would mystically gesticulate and the coin would turn. Oh, wow. That's cool. It's like, oh, awesome. Kim um, had a strange strategy. He, he would swear that. You needed the perfect square. It wasn't about a circle for him. It was oh, the perfect right. square. Yeah. And once he'd done the coin, he would then get his crowd exactly where he wanted it. And he would literally place people as anchors in the, in the corner. Right. And don't move. And he'd play this game of he'd turn around and then move. And he literally picked them up and put them back until he had his four anchors. And it was like this game you know, with a whistle. And then he'd bring everybody into a line, making run around gesticulating, creating this imaginary rope mm-hmm. all around, brought everybody in. And he would not start. He ran around it like about 15, 20, 30, 40 times, you know, just until it was perfectly lined, perfect rectangle. So it was a real big deal to get him to stand where yeah, they yeah. wanted him. Yeah, but just like that. He would never let a volunteer go. I right. watched him run uh, two miles. Somebody <laughs> who would, he, he, he didn't have much great French skills. He pulled out a guy. The guy went, you know, he would literally force volunteers out. Um, the guy would go, no, I have to, I have, I've got a business meeting, man, I can't do this. I'm just watching him until, you know, for five minutes. And he was going, no, and he'd pull him out. And as soon as he had his back turned, the guy bolted. And Kim bolted after him. Right. And ran. <laughs> and the guy and Kim, and everybody's just like, oh, shit, he's gone. And he took five minutes. And Kim came back, carrying the guy. Everyone stayed. What? 
and Kim carried the guy back, put him there, and then released him, and then let him go. Right. But the whole time I talked to him afterwards, and I went, well, well what did you say to him? He said, oh, I said, you can't leave like that, otherwise I lose face. He had that whole, you know, Asian face thing. Right. To him, it was all about stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will bring you back. I will release you. I will find someone else first. You guys will shake hands. I will release you, and then you can go. But you just can't run around. I, I will not let you go. Right. And the guy went, okay, you followed me like a quarter of a mile from where I was, where all your gear is and everybody. Fair enough. Uh, so, and I have to carry you back. <laughs> I think that's possibly where, you know, we... I first got that idea of, well, you can actually leave a crowd. Right. Get in a car, drive away. They'll still be there. Yes. You know, as part of the mimicry thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Initially, Andy and I tested it. Uh, Andy was always there as a double act. Yeah. Uh, initially. So he would make sure that, you know, the gear was safe and all the rest of it. But then we got a bit more adventurous and we did it as if it's that. We'd park the crowd, stop the car, get in the car, and drive away. <laughs> I the IMAX pitch at Darling Harbour, they, in the, more recent years, in the 2000s, they had a taxi rank there, and I would always get in a taxi when I, I ran away, you know, for, to take my run-up. You know, I'd jump in the taxi, and I'd say to the driver, just drive 10 feet, it'll be hilarious. And he'd like, take off and stop, and I'd jump out. What are you doing? What do you think the future is for Buskin? Well, I mean, at, at this moment, I mean, all it is really is uh, um, people are obsessed with sharing moments that are happening to them. So that's, I think that's all we're, we're good for at, the, at this point is, uh, is someone's Facebook feed, you know, so someone will get the thing, they'll just take a, a quick video of you doing one trick and then they'll put it on there so 10 people can like it, which is a shame, you know, there's a lot of people that really are enjoying it and I mean, don't get me wrong, the shows are still great still enjoy it and the audience still enjoy, enjoys it but half of them have their phones out which is weird yeah so i don't know that's, that's been a huge change the, the, the loss of focus yeah from this being the dominating thing or this a whole sea, sea of hands doing this right with yeah. a phone yeah. yeah to capture moments that's a huge change yeah have you tried you tried paypal in the street didn't you yeah um i mean it works how did that work i, I get payments but uh not that many. I mean, you think if I imagine all the people in the crowd that don't have cash on them and the amount of tips I get on PayPal, like it's there's nowhere near the amount that yeah. I should be getting. You know what I mean? It's almost not even worth having the sign. Yeah, I mean, I try it out. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people are like, oh, I, I really want to do this. And they ask you how to do it. And it's like, well, do you have PayPal? Oh, uh, no. All right, well, you need PayPal. <laughs> Uh, you know, we're not there yet. I guess no. uh, at some point we'll be at a cashless society, but we're not there yet. You know, people have still got cash. They're still putting cash in the, in the hat. So as long as they're still doing that, I don't really see a need to, to try and, you know, get credit card payments off people right now. I don't think I'm losing out. Money as, money as an idea has been around for a long, long time, but I think it's going to disappear tomorrow. You know, there'll always be uh, a form of currency. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You can't do it all electronically. If it's electronic currency, then it'll be so effortless to utilize and pass on to other people. That, yeah, yeah. That we'll just adapt with it. You started uh, Street Biz, which is one of the first kind of online uh, street theater places, for, you know, where there was a bunch of, um, like a community, you know what I mean? How did that all come about? It grew out of the fact that 
so many of us were getting requested re requests during shows or after shows. Uh, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do this? Right. We needed to have some kind of on, well, online had just started. First of all, it, 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 would, it didn't exist until the internet to a degree. Oh, no, it existed before the internet. It existed before the internet. The concept of a collector for performers being able to consult and deal with the corporate world uh, right. rather than each, each one of us doing it independently. That they could, you know, for example, Darling Harbour got loads of requests through the phones all the time. Yeah. Uh, people wouldn't approach necessarily performers, but companies or individuals would ring up Darling Harbour and say, oh, I need a busker. Who have you got? And Darling Harbour would be like, well, we don't give that information out. Uh, so I went to Darling Harbour and went, well, look, give it to me. And, and that way, you, you know, we're not losing out. And I will distribute it down, down the line to, to whoever I see, to whoever really wants to do it or who's in town at the time or who suits it the best, you know. Yeah. Um, or who, who's, who's attracted by it the most. I'll, I'll just throw it out there you know, and, and, and see what happens. Yeah. It's a shame to, to send these people away. It was kind of a way to deal with that. And also that it was a front for the consultancy stuff to, to, to come in. You know, Sydney City Council didn't want to deal with an individual so much right. after the initial after the initial year or two. Same with the Opera House. They felt they needed to deal with the body. The collective. So I thought, okay, you won't be dealing with me anymore. You'll be dealing with Street Biz. Street Biz is a collective of uh, Australian street performers, uh, of which I'm the representative. There you go. Right. Um, so, you know, it's... Instead of me uh, trying to to make sure that we can safeguard uh, Circular Key or whatever, it becomes uh, Street Biz, but it's still the face is still the same sort of thing. Right. So I think that that's that's essentially what it grew out of, and an attempt to because people would try. You know, there was a love of what we did, and they wanted to incorporate it into what they needed, but they needed someone to be able to step in and go. You just can't take this magic from here and put it anywhere. There are certain characters that make it work, yeah. certain things that make it that make it viable, and if those ingredients don't exist where you put it, it's going to fail. It's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, no, and, and, no, and no, so if you're start. running a once you start, there'll be a crowd, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because no, people by. <laughs> miles from nowhere. There's <laughs> there's three people in, in the vicinity. There isn't there isn't a shot of this. Yeah. You needed someone to step in to, to, as to go. Number one, you need to actually contribute in some form to commit yourself to it, mm -hmm. so that we see a commitment on your part. We will commit on our part. Yeah. It's not simply, oh, busking will be really good here. Why don't you just show up and we'll get loads of people in front of our shops and we'll make money thanks to you. It was more like if we could step in and go, this is a, a two-way street. Uh, you want us to come? We're happy to come, uh, but we need to be able to make the space work for us so that the ingredients that we use. Um, are available to us and therefore yeah. we can do our trade. And at the same time, you need to be able to, um, in a way, sponsor us or look after us you know, until it's set and running. And until if it does take off as a space or, or as a festival, then great. If it doesn't, I mean, that's street, out of street, there's Grucos Harbour, the right. Busker Fest. The Coffs Harbour Busker yeah. Fest, uh, that started when? Way, in, be in the before, 90s? way before John Logan. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, it had uh, a hiatus for many one, years, right? The first one was started by Rotary, by, by a guy called, uh, I can't remember his name, Graham Raby or Greg Raby, something like that. Yeah. He was a Rotarian, and he had gone to a Rotary convention in Vancouver, right. and on the Canadian plane, he'd read an article about Halifax, 
And there was right. a whole article on the butterfly man shaving his head. Yeah. There was a lovely photo of Robert shaving his tat. Interviews with, with all the stars of, of Halifax in those days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he came back to Coffs and went, this is what we need to start. Right. And, uh, we were doing the fake competition concept in order to get Darling Harbour to open up its doors to us. Right. So we we created this concept of a competition. That way it was could be marketed by Darling Harbour. Uh-huh. We didn't really give a shit who won. There was no prize. And <laughs> um, I think William won it one year and Patty won it the next or something like that. I can't even recall. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was a way of them being able to see this is the kind of entertainment, this is the reaction it has in this space. You've seen it work. You've seen how people love it. Why don't we just do this on a regular level in the same space, exactly the same, Without your little stage, without your celebrities, we just go out and do exactly what we've seen here. Right. Give it a break, let it draw, and then start it up again. And that was the whole concept, of the, the whole sell to Johnny Allen. Yeah. And then at the end of the the, the the second the second one, Michael Raby, I think his name was Michael Raby, walked up from Coffs Harbour, going, "I would love to invite you guys to come to Coffs Harbour and do a festival." And as he walked off, and he said to me, "We need to talk." Cool. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, and that year, that was that was the year that. Uh, Wayne and Nanny won, and the prize was a uh, it was a competition, yeah. people's choice uh, competition thing. And Wayne and Nanny won a trip to Halifax. Oh wow! Uh, so the festival. winner gets to go to Halifax. That was, that was the prize because oh. he saw them being linked. Yeah, that's and, cool. Uh, as and 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 the concept was to start a whole bunch of them that we right. that would all feed the off network. Yeah, never went. And uh, how many beyond. years did Coffs Harbour go on before it like took a break? Uh, it had four incarnations. Right. Uh, before Rotary realised that it was so much work. Right. Rotary being a volunteer organisation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Michael, I think, had to had to move somewhere else in town, or or was his business moved or something. And then it went quiet, and that's when John went. Maybe I'll resurrect this. Yeah, that John was early two thousands. It came back, right? Yeah. So it ran from about maybe uh, 89, 90, 91, 92, 93, like that, and then had a break and came back 97, 98, something like that. It was a five-year hiatus. Right. Yeah. And you had a hand in starting uh, Fremantle, is that right? Alex Marshall started Frio. Right. Along with, along with the boys on the pitch at the time. Right. Uh, That's a great as festival. A way of, yeah, it was. That it still, still is. is. It's, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's still the largest street theatre festival in Australia. Yeah. Or busking festival in Australia. Absolutely. Uh, Alex got burnt out by it. He did the first two or three. Right. Uh, and, and it just burnt him. It was just so much hard work. Uh, and he wanted a year or two off, so he went to he went to, to Fremantle Council and went, look, if anybody can carry this on. I remember doing the first one. I was flown in as an act right. on, on his first stop that year. And then so that was my intro to it. And then three or four years down the track, he said, I've had enough. I can't run this anymore. Uh, I suggest you bring in Dom. Because they couldn't find anybody locally. They hired me, and I, I flew to Frio for three or four weeks beforehand. They yeah. put me up. They paid me a, a fee, obviously. They housed me. And I ran around like a mad-ass fly trying to. They wanted me to take it to the next, to the next level. It was, it was tough to the degree that um, I, had to, I had to sit down with the local acts. And I actually met some of these 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 guys at South Bank uh, two weekends ago. Right. Uh, the, the man who created the uh, Buskers Gum T-shirt, Scott. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Beck, uh, Scott and Beck were busking at South Bank. Yeah, I know them. And, but I, had to, I was brought in kind of like the, the Gordon Gecko scenario mm-hmm. 
where you want to make this, you want to take the small company to the next level. So I had to sit down with all the performers who've been working. There have been two incarnations of this festival. I had to sit down at the Salamanca with Gavin and Beck and Scott um, and, and then all the others who's, who's, uh, whose faces are scouting you right now and go, friend, guys, I know this is your gig, your festival, uh, and I know you've had it for two years running, but in order for it to go up to the next level, it just can't be the same acts all the time. Yeah, yeah, you've got to if I run it or Alex runs it or whoever runs it, he's yeah. putting on Ross and Brendan and Scott and Beck and Trent year in, year out, year in, it's going to die. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it needs variety. I, I'm the Gordon Gecko. I will call this if you, if you want to look at it in that way mm-hmm. and tell you that you're not on this year, you're on next year, and you're not on this year, you're on next year, but you're on this year, but you're on, on next year. Right. And they, you know, it was it was a hard it was a hard thing for them. Yeah, they don't want to hear that. Yeah, definitely. An outsider come in, go, hi, you know, we know we know of you, we know you're a big street act, but at the same time, you're fine. Um, you can't just sit here and tell us that I'm not playing at my festival this year. And I went, you have to look at the long term. The yeah. Short term is that you'll do it again and again, and it fades out. The long term is that you take turns at it, you share it amongst yourselves, the lot so that the local side is diminished. And we bring in a heap of initially more national acts. And, and we make it world class, you know? And we put it on a bigger level so that the people come back. That's what, that's what brings people back, is good acts that they've never seen before. Yeah, exactly. Something new and, you know, something Unique. strong, something different. Absolutely. And it's going great guns. Yeah. And I think partly because cause Alex is always, he's back in charge of it now, has been for quite a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did and, it uh, uh, last year. And in 14, and it was amazing. Best one in Australia, definitely. Well, that I've been to recently. And hopefully Christchurch will, will climb back up again after after the quakes. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I've done it a couple of times yeah. since since the earthquakes too, and and uh, it's still it's still a great festival. I mean, there's no question that yeah, people at Christchurch uh, are behind that festival. You know, they really they come out, they come to all the shows, they really support it. So you know it's, it's it's going to take more than a couple of earthquakes to to um, kill that festival. Well, we don't see a a, a huge climb in, in, in festivals anymore. Right. Well, you you started uh, surfing the cold stream too. Is that uh, that was in Yamba, right? Yep. And that was uh, uh-huh. like not really a street performer festival, but you you brought in some street performers for that. The model was to create. We have a festival in Australia called Woodford. Uh, Woodford is, is kind of like a mini Glastonbury in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all, all that wonderful alternative energy of, you know, uh, alternative bands, street theater, visual artists, dancers, community groups, all of that concept. And, you know, on a beautiful site. And it's one of the most successful festivals in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's huge. And I went and thought, I can't just do a street theater festival here because it's not enough of a draw card in itself to a region that's never seen street theatre. Uh-huh. What I'm going to do is is create a day at Woodford in Yamba and make it free. Instead right. of paying the uh, 150 bucks a day you have to pay to go into Woodford, I'm going to keep it a free festival. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I can bring in large-scale street theatre, earth theatre troops, music, musicians, aerial companies, as well as street closures and, and uh, the boys like... 
you know, like like who's around and he wants a little holiday in the Amber. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't run it anymore though. The, the toll uh, it it got really big. Right. Uh, well, no, big big for for us. I mean, Yamba's a small town. Yamba is seven eight thousand people. Yeah. That's it's not large on on anybody's map. And the final the the the, the final one I did drew eighteen thousand people in oh, town, wow. uh, according to the coppers. It's pretty big for uh, one day. Uh, yeah, and it became yeah. It, it's actually a weekend. We would we would start it on on we would start it on uh, the Thursday night. Then there was a Friday up. Uh, Afternoon, and then it became Saturday, Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I was able to, 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 to generate enough funding, for example, to hire a big top. Uh, so, you know, and that's just for that without having to pay everyone else. And, and you know, the, the government saw the vision, and, and at the time when the government was funding the arts on a more serious level uh, than the current one, um, you know, they, they were happy to fund it. But it became you know, a full time occupation almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then I realized that there were other things I wanted to do with my life, and uh, so I pa- uh, it passed on. And it's still going. It's, it's, it's going. It's this weekend, actually. Uh, it was always designed on my birthday. I came back from Canada in 2004 after Canadian tour. Yeah. And went, okay, I'm, I'm going to re- have that amount of fun in my life again, hanging around performers again, is to bring them to Yamba. And the only way that's going to happen is if I create an event that's worth them coming here. Right, yeah. I stopped space, and I went, this would be a perfect pitch, but there's no way I'm going to draw a crowd in here other than you know maybe one or two days in the middle of the holidays. Right, um, right. So a, a happened, I have to create this whole this this and and sell it like it became almost like an election campaign. Right. You know, on, on the road, going, I'm going to bring in this huge thing, and yeah. people are like, I hadn't known that um, a whole group of people had come into Yamba uh, ten years ago. Uh, Gold Coast entrepreneurs. Writing off the fact that a couple of them had been, had been on, on, a, on a local, on an Australian television program, and had gone to the Chamber of Commerce at Yamba and gone, we will give you this, this extravaganza. We promise Pavarotti, the singer, what? on main of Yamba. Isn't he dead? He, he is now, but he wasn't then. And uh, it'll cost you $60 a seat. We will put on this huge expo. We will, and, and they just basically did, did, did a con. And they oh. walked out, walked out this little town, having promised this town the biggest event in its history with quarter of a million dollars. Oh. And the chamber went down. Two businesses lost their homes. Wow. And and the concept of running an event in that town went out the window. Right. And I had no idea that that happened until I, you know, until you know, five years later, Dom turns up and goes, "Hey, I'm going to do this big extravaganza. Oh yeah, you're going to be like the last guy. I'm going to be even better than the last guy." <laughs> <laughs> And we ran away with a quarter of a million. How much are you going to get? You know? uh, and it, they didn't actually say the, the time, but after a while, I started to realize that there was some sort of a hidden story that I wasn't realizing. And so I did some research. And yeah, like, oh, yeah. shit, okay. I've got to actually win these people back over again and make them realize that you can have an event and, and celebrate as a community, and it doesn't have to be a ripoff thing. And so, uh, so you still play the street um, as a musician, right? So you started out you know, juggling... And then with Andy, Zip and Zap, and Mimicry, and going through the whole tour in the world, festivals, and uh, transitioning into, into... You always played guitar, right, since you were a kid? Yeah, I, I, I learned how to play the guitar when I was 12. And you still play uh, on the street as a, as a guitarist? Yeah, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Awesome. Like the farmer's market. Right. So that's cool, man. 
And 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 uh, do you miss like the uh, the big show? Sometimes. Yeah. Um, it's playing as a musician is really different. It's far more giving of yourself mm-hmm. than we, we adopt characters, we adopt personas, we adopt these 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 great versions of ourselves. Some of them are born on, on things that, that we've seen or been influenced by theatrically. Uh, but we create these larger-than-life personalities yeah. uh, in order to capture a public. You know, the Captain Kinos, the Master League, right. that whole, you know, the Alakazams, <laughs> that whole, I am way bigger than anything you'll ever see. Right. And that's part that that that, that appeal. Um, and, and part of the way we draw crowds. Mm-hmm. Some of us, like Tina, for example, had a hell of a lot, uh, found it really hard to be able to turn it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and became the character full time, which means that he, he ran into certain amounts of strife, walking into nightclubs and, and restaurants and assuming the world was going to treat him like a god. Right. Um, where most of us, like you, have figured out that I do that on stage and I turn it off. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very theatrical thing. And then you create a structure, uh, so, you know this the skeleton, and you you imbue it with all this, this theatrical know-how to make it to make it work. As a musician, or if you're playing your own, and there there are there are, there are musicians to musicians. I only play my own music. I may do two covers, you know, in two or three covers max, yeah. in a set on the street. But I can play for for an hour or two of just my stuff. So it's me, yeah, and different me than the, it's 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 far more intimate. It's it becomes you really giving of yourself without doing it through a theatrical persona. More personal. So yeah, so it becomes far more yeah, far more you're far more vulnerable, mm-hmm. uh, and people and that's what holds people to watch you because they can sense that this this guy is creating out of the moment that they've never heard before. It's unusual. It's uh, I mean part of my quest on the street right now is to find the sound. The, the, the type of tone and the sequence of notes that will stop people dead in their tracks. Right. That you can be on a public place and you play a series of, uh, you know, a form of music. It's like uh, a hook in a song. Uh, exactly. It's, it's like a, a series of, 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 you know, a musical structure with a certain sound that people go, wow. It's like, uh, divine. oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blow my mind. Hey, Mickey. You know? Yeah, kind of like that, but doing it with a, with, 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 you know, with a series of notes mm-hmm. or, or with a richness and a, and a beauty in it that's almost ethereal. That's almost, you know, that's like, wow. Because it happened to me. Um, there's a musician who has been working the streets in Australia for a long, 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 long time. He's still doing it, I think, in Amsterdam where he's based now. His name is Lindsay Buckland. All right. And yeah. the first time I heard Lindsay was in the Adelaide Mall in the early 90s. Right. And I wasn't working or anything. I was just walking through. I think it was during the Adelaide Fringe. And I heard her from a distance. And it was just like, you know, it's like a siren calling you. Mm-hmm. As in the, the thing, sailors, not the thing that's on the bottom of a police car. Yeah. And, and I was just drawn to it. And it's happened to me since Tupac, too. There's another one like that. Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. Uh, he's and, actually and on my list to uh, interview as well. Yeah, he lives in and Boston. And, and so. Yeah, wow, okay. Yeah. He's Say hi to him for me. Yeah, we'll do. But the probably got, he's, just, he's just copying me there. Because uh. uh, instrument. But um, it's, it's, it's really different. So there was that, it's that quality that, that you know, and, and, and a lot of it is the tone, a tone that you can only create through fingers, instruments, and having researched 
the sound that you that that's really you. And I stop a lot of musicians in their tracks because they're like, oh wow, how do you how do you sound so pure? Right. How do you sound? Because right. yeah. it's not string. There's a there's a heavy element of reverb and delay in there, obviously, because mm-hmm. that gives it that that, that you know, large space sound. And it's a it's a form of I don't know. It's, it works. Yeah. It's it's never gonna sell me CDs on a on a huge scale, but it's it works enough for for people to for for people to buy you know buy it enough to to keep to to keep my interest in it. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm 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 not on the degree of of, of a two part. Partly because it's you know people need to recognise. I think that's part of the thing with the formula of, of uh, when we do certain street acts like Juggling Fire on a Unicycle mm-hmm. or or Apex. These are they're covers in a way. Yeah, Much absolutely. Yeah, that's that's like, where you see uh, a lot of success in street music is uh, is people playing covers in a unique way. Yeah, whereas I'm playing stuff that people have never heard. They can't, you know, because it's me. It's it's, uh-huh. it's my melodies. Yeah, my, my music. Um, a lot of it is, is heavily gy- gypsy based. Mm-hmm. It's the first guitar player I ever heard when I was uh, six months old was Django Reinhardt. Right. Uh, and I've always been fascinated by the the Manush side, I think it just stirs that those those tonalities, that 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 way of playing music is always, and it kind of suits the, you know, when when I say it's me, also you're also creating a bit, bit of a gypsy vibe out there. So you know, this guy looks like a, a troubadour, gypsy, whatever out there. Yeah, this is this a bit of that. You've lived like a whole life of of street theatre, really. You know, how many years has it been now? I started when we uh, before before busking. <laughs> well, it was a former bus, but not the busking that we knew. Right. Um, I started living in house trucks in New Zealand in the late seventies. Right. Uh, Jane and I built a house in the back of an old fifties Bedford truck, uh, and lived in that. And for the first couple of years, it was pretty handyman enough. But then, after a while, festivals started to grow in New Zealand, mm-hmm. and like Ambassador and Sweetwaters being the two biggest ones, and those those would bring in a whole heap of you know musicians, comedians, and all the rest of it. And they became a live uh, an income for us. And all of a sudden, we started to realize that the attention we we, we got from the, from from driving these beautiful homes on the back of vintage trucks right. around uh, around New Zealand, people, you know, you'd go shopping and come back, and there was a crowd around the truck, mm. literally rounded, going, "We've never seen a vehicle like this. What is this?" And then you know, people would were just dying to wait to meet the person who built it. So you'd do a show. And for I was them? like, how? Well, how do you how do you festival? I never knew shows existed. Right. Uh, how do you? Uh, what can we? How can we make that attention work? So I did, I did a bit of work uh, uh, of research and realised that well, if, if we form a group of us, we could actually tour. And it was like a Pied Piper. We would drive into small towns of you mm-hmm. know, five thousand people. We prearranged it with council. We knew you know, to, to use the local park, and we'd drive through the town, in, you know, at five miles an hour, about fifteen twenty trucks. Or handmade, wow. and it was like uh, like like a parade in a way, like the circuses. Actual street theatre on the street. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and we'd, we'd, and everybody would follow us like a pipe piper thing into a park, and everybody would you know form a circle, and everybody would put their wares out, drop their you know sell their t-shirts or their bone cards. Yeah, yeah. And Dan and I would put a little circus ring in front of our truck, and do clown skits. Total total uh, gypsy lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, and, and and busk it, and that was that's that's how you know, we so do people to the show. So that's and almost so we came to, uh, forty years ago, right? Almost. That was yeah, that, yeah, the, 
and we did the first street shows in 81, 82, right. 83. They weren't street shows really. Uh, we, we, we made by, by what our standards are pitiful. But it was, it was enough to, to, to keep that attention going. There were no juggling props. I made them. My first torches were a, a broomstick cut in three with a, a rolling pin cut in three that had been put on the end. Yeah. And then sash, sash cord wrapped around them. Sash cord was, was, was used for windows in, 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 in wooden buildings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they would hold them for about, oh, they were huge. They would they'd create a monster of a flame. That's where I discovered the walk of death, walking over Jane. Nice. Uh, yeah, that was, everybody always said, oh, he was dead off, but no, that came out, out is of that, uh, Is that your legacy on the street theatre world? Or or if, if not, then what is? It's the energy I had, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think we leave beyond the, the, the you know, the lines that, that you know, you know the, the, the gag where you have two torches? Right. You, oh, shit, you know. This that, one's still, yeah. Uh, I came up with that in the paddock in New Zealand. When yeah. I got to San Francisco, I was like, how the fuck did they find that? That's mine. <laughs> but, you know, there's this thing which I've called the collective unconscious. Right. Uh, I once wrote a song before I was in New Zealand. I, I had a couple of bands in New Zealand uh, after I left university. And I wrote a song with an amazing riff. And it was a beautiful song. And I had a three-piece and we used to do it in the odd gigs that we'd get. And then, you know, three months down the track of friend of mine went, oh, i got the next Pink Floyd album. Come and check it out. So we all got, went back to the flat, the communal household, and left the joints, put the put Pink Floyd on. And the first thing that comes bellowing out of the speakers is my roof. And I'm wow. completely stoned on my head. How the fuck did David Gilmore get that? It's note for note. <laughs> da, 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 da. The opening of, of, of uh, Shine On Your Crazy Diamond. Right, on the Wish right. You Here album. La, 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 la. I was like, fucking hell. I was I was devastated. It was like, how do you do it? And then you know, years later, I realized that there's this thing called the collective unconscious, where a, a group of us, a whole lot of us, might be playing with, with an art form, be it busking, mm-hmm. and we come up with simpler stuff all around the planet at different yeah, times. I mean, there's, I guess there's only so much stuff you can come up with juggling fire or, you know, juggling knives or whatever, yeah. you know? Like, you don't have to see someone to come up with a similar idea. Huh. So someone else in San Francisco did that one went, Hey, I got a great new bit, you know. Mm-hmm. And someone else decided to finally climb up a unicycle and juggle fire. Or yeah, yeah, crazy. Some bits never, some bits never took off. Others became mainstream, right. and they're eventually like they're like covers. But ultimately, you know, they it's it's the energy that you have that carries you out there. It doesn't matter the bits help, but ultimately you find your own, or you find a reason for being out there. And that's one of the things that I, I think. We really need to reinvent, and I see a little bit of it now. Not that I'm watching a lot of street theatre, you probably be, be able to see more. But when we first started, we brought in things from the outside world. We trained as comedians, as minds, mm-hmm. as clowns, as actors, as pay, as as artists, or whatever. And then we took that that training and went to the street. And went, how can we make this work out there? How do we adapt these art forms? How do we adapt my training, street. Shakespeare? Yeah. to work in the street, you know. I'm starting to see a bit more of that come back. I right. coached a, a girl called Claire uh, two weekends ago. She was doing like a fifth or sixth street show ever. Mm-hmm. And she set up on a pitch at South Bank. And I walked up to her and I went, why, why, did, why, did, why did you stop there? Why are you facing this direction? Look, 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 look around you. What do you see? Where are people walking? How, how, where's mm-hmm. the sun? Where's, where, where's, where's the place? Where's the shade? 
It's really hot out here. It's Brisbane. Mm -hmm. It's the first hot day they had for a while. It's about 30 degrees right now. Look. Oh, oh. Stand where I'm standing right now. <laughs> now what do you see? Ah, do you see if your face here, your face sits in shade. The people will stop. Look, they're stopping at me just showing you this. Uh, now, if you bring your gear over here and face your music that way, what will happen? You know? And then you'll get and walk through here. And then, you know, what are you going to do? And I just coached her through it for a bit. Yeah. And then I went up to the bar and watched, you know, and said that, you know, afterwards, if you want to, I'm up there, I'm up here, come and have a drink, and, and I'll give some feedback. And she did, and we spent an hour talking. She had some good skills, and she, you know, good, good circus skills, and she had the, the body of a dancer and the ability to use that. And when she did, people stopped. And when she went back and tried to emulate the other performers that she'd seen in the past, people would disappear. And I went, did you notice that? Right, right. You really do what you're good at. Because when you're doing things like dancing, with you, you, think, you may think it's lame because it's only three, three, uh, three balls. But it's not lame. Robert Nelson, one of the greatest performers in, on the planet, you know, only juggled three balls for a while. They had a whole three ball so five ball juggling routine, you know, to music. Yeah. And, you know, it's, 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 you're doing it really gracefully. You know, you, you're, you've got a nice athletic, you're a woman, you've got a nice body, you've learned to dance well, you can move it well, and, you, and you're expressing yourself. But at those moments, you're you. You're no one else. You're you. Mm -hmm. That's what you've got to act for. And just stuff like that. And that's, that's fun, you know. I'm happy to, happy to do that. But the, the thought of she's done something and she's trying to bring you. She didn't research. She didn't go and, 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 and watch every juggling show on the planet or look at it online or whatever. Right. She went, how can I incorporate that in movement? If I do this, then it makes me do that. And she, she looked at it from that angle. And I'm like, that's what you've got to focus on. That's Forget cool. the rest. Yeah, that's it. It's all about being yeah. unique, you know, trying to be unique and, uh, and uh, you know, bringing something new to people that have yeah. seen everything these days. They've, you know, they've, they're just like, uh, we've seen it all. <laughs> yeah, we have. We have. Yeah. And more and more, we're oversaturated. It's got to a point now that, that we get given so much stimulus. Yeah. You know, our imaginations are excited. So, you know, there's so much online now. Yeah, you watch uh, the video um, for like five seconds and watch another one for like yeah. six seconds. And, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, after all those years, um, what has street theatre given you? Ultimately, a far closer appreciation of who I really am and a far better road to know myself. Yeah. I think we're all on this planet for one goal and it's not trying to try and get a Maserati in 10, 10 apartments in New York. Right. It's, you know, ultimately at the end, the more you know who you were, what your gift was and why you're on the planet, uh, the better a person you become. Mm -hmm. And street theater is an amazing way because you're giving of yourself to so many all the time. You can't but not. You can't stand there and go through a routine, even if it's to music or whatever, in the, and, and act it out as if it didn't mean anything to you. You have to put your all and, and, and your love of who you are as a human being out of everything that you know. You have to pour everything that you are at that point in time into what you do just to, to really make people go beyond the, I'm simply watching to something to, I love you and um, I want to give you money. Um, I love street theatre for the moments where it goes beyond everything. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many of us 
do shows and we only get this in maybe one or two or three or four shows a year. I know you've had it because I've seen it on your face while, you, while you've <laughs> performed. Um, you get moments where time stops. It's like a car accident in reverse. And all of a sudden, even though you're going through the motions and you're saying the things that you've said at that point, or more or less, and you're going through what happens, needs to happen next in order to get to this bit, and all of that is just flowing through you like a conduit because you're fluid and you're, you're a Zen master at it. But all of a sudden, time stops. And instantly you sense, they all sense that time has stopped for you. you got to move and outside your body for a stop. second. Yeah, for a split second, yeah. they all stop with you. And for one moment, you're just sharing this divine energy yeah. all together. Uh, it's the same feeling as you get when, when you jump out of a plane or you surf and you catch that wave and you're holding that wave. And for one minute, you're one with the fucking universe. Yeah. Or you're one with whatever the entity is. And they're all one with you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, don't, you can't express it in words. It's just a vibe. It's just a feeling. I know what you mean. Know that that's yeah. the reason. Yeah. And I, that's I'm, why I'm able lying. to acknowledge that moment. I know when that happens. Yeah. And I, I'm able yeah. to acknowledge it and identify it. And I make the yeah. most of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And that's yeah. why that line is, I do what I am born to do. Yeah. Uh, it's so true. Because if you have those moments or you get close to those moments in shows, um, then they see that that's it. Not only is it such an adrenaline dope, dopamine ahead for all of us who go out there and do it, we strive for those moments where all of a sudden we strive for those shows. And they're the Golden things moment. that... It's, it, it no longer becomes about money. Uh, money just becomes another part of it. You expect it and they expect to give it to you. You have to find different reasons for making yourself want to go out there other than just an addiction to adrenaline. I just um, want to be funny. That's what drives me yeah. to go to the pitch. With being funny comes a huge amount of love. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, human beings are the only sentient beings on the planet who, incorporate, who understand humor comedy, the concept of laughter. By, uh, by making someone laugh, you're relaxing, t- you're releasing tension. Yeah. And if you just keep doing that and keep making them laugh more and more, more and more that tension is released and in large numbers of people, to the end that they are just loving you. That's ultimately that love, that touch, is I think what drives all of us. And that's, and, and you know, comedy is, is a great way to do it. Comedy is, is, is a superb way to do it, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing drive for it. And it's, it's why we should keep, you know, it'll always be there. This episode was proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org. And a huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to become a sponsor, contact me at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. You can also visit the Busker Hall of Fame website and throw a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com forward slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help grow this resource and generate more content. Thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping keep busking history alive. Music for this episode came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell a friend about it and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. On behalf of myself, Al Miller, who recorded the interview, Kim Potter, who edited it into submission, and the rest of the team of the Busker Hall of Fame, remember, if you can't laugh at yourself, find someone else and laugh at them. I'm Magic Brian, and thanks for listening.